Hello friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. There are several cases before the Supreme Court that raise important questions at the intersection of law and technology. In this episode, I was honored to have Alex Abdo, Clay Calvert, and David Green join me for a wide-ranging conversation exploring the key tech cases before the court this term. This episode was originally aired on America's Town Hall. Please enjoy the conversation. This is the beginning of our 2024 winter town hall season. We've got some great programs coming up, including conversations on David Hume, Harriet Tubman, Abraham Lincoln, the state of American democracy, and more. I'm thrilled to share as well that on President's Day, I'm launching my new book, and I can't wait to share it with you. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, will join me in a conversation at the NCC on February 19th, and then we'll be uh, off and running to talk about it throughout the winter. So excited to talk with you about the pursuit of happiness and this wonderful moral philosophy that inspired the founders to think of happiness not as feeling good, but being good, not the pursuit of pleasure, but the pursuit of virtue. We will have a great discussion today about a crucial topic, and that is technology and the future of the First Amendment. The Supreme Court is hearing a series of important cases that may redefine the nature of First Amendment rights online, and we've convened a dream team to help us think through the issues in the cases. Alex Abdo is inaugural litigation director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. For that, he worked at the ACLU and uh, is a frequent commentator on the First Amendment. Clay Calvert is non-resident senior fellow in technology policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a professor of law emeritus at the Levin College of Law and Breckner eminent scholar emeritus at the College of Journalism and Communication. And those are both at the University of Florida. He's written many uh, books and articles uh, and is the author of the textbook Mass Media Law and also author of Voyeur Nation, Media Privacy and Peering in Modern Culture. And David Green is Senior Staff Attorney and Civil Liberties Director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law. He has significant litigation experience on the First Amendment and was lead staff counsel for the First Amendment Project, where he worked on many cases, including Bunner versus DVD CCA. It's an honor to welcome you, Alex Abdo, Clay Calvert, and David Green. In our conversations, you've helpfully defined the issues that we have to talk about by dividing the cases into three broad categories. First, there are the two net choice cases, which raise the question, does the First Amendment protect social media's companies' content moderation decisions? Second, there's the jawboning decision, Murthy versus Missouri. And the question is, can the government pressure social media companies to take down or hide content? And finally, we have Linkey and O'Connor Radcliffe, two cases that raise the important question, can government officials block private citizens on social media? Let's begin with the net choice cases. Does the First Amendment protect social media's companies' content moderation decisions? This involves two laws from 
Texas and Florida. Alex Abdo, why don't you tell us what those laws say and broadly whether or not you think they are constitutional? Sure. I'll start by saying it's great to be here, Jeff. Always a pleasure to talk about the Constitution uh, with you. So these laws differ in their particulars, but at the highest level, both Texas's and Florida's laws do two things. First, they limit the ability of social media platforms to take down speech that the platform or speech or users that the platforms would prefer not to um, leave up. And they also require the platforms to disclose a significant amount of information about uh, how they work and about uh, decisions they make to take down or suppress um, user accounts or user content. To get a little bit more specific, uh, Texas's law um, uh, the, uh, has a must-carry provision that forbids social media platforms from uh, censoring users on the basis of viewpoint. So a platform um, subject to that law could not, for example, take down speech uh, on the basis of its disagreement with that speech. If it, for example, um, wanted to take down what it considered to be disinformation about some particular topic, that would likely violate Texas's law because that would be a removal of speech on the basis of viewpoint. Um, Florida's law is a little bit different. It forbids the platforms from censoring candidates for office um, and from censoring journalistic enterprises. So it's not uh, as broad a must-carry provision as, as Texas is, but it is nonetheless a must-carry provision uh, in that it requires platforms to carry, again, certain accounts or speech that they would prefer not to. Um, and you know these two different elements um, of each of the laws, I think, raise slightly different questions for the Supreme Court to resolve. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, put my cards on the table just quickly so folks know, you know, where I am, and I'll give a little bit of explanation. I think both of the must-carry provisions of the laws are unconstitutional because I think they override the platform's own editorial decisions about the speech that they want to leave up or take down, and the Supreme Court has recognized in a long line of cases that the government needs a very, very good justification before it can force uh, individuals or companies to carry speech uh, that they would prefer uh, not to carry. And I don't think either of the states has come anywhere close to justifying um, their must-carry provisions. I think the transparency provisions of the law um, are subject generally to a slightly different constitutional framework because the Supreme Court has um, said that commercial disclosures, so long as they are limited to the compelled disclosure of purely factual and uncontroversial information about commercial products, um, can be constitutional if the government has, um, has justified them and if they do not impose an undue burden on speech. I think there's a decent argument that uh, at least one of Texas's uh, transparency requirements satisfies that framework, and I'm happy to get into the specifics later. Um, I don't think the the Florida provision that is before the Supreme Court satisfies that um, uh, even that lower standard of review because Florida's uh, transparency requirement um, is extremely burdensome, and you know again I don't think satisfies even the lower level of scrutiny the Supreme Court has set out for commercial for commercial disclosures. There's more in the details there, but I'll, I'll start out at the high level. Thank you for that very helpful introduction to both cases and for distinguishing between the Texas and Florida law, which, as you note, uh, differ in the amount of disclosure that they require. You suggest that Florida would requ require a huge amount of uh, notice and Texas less so. 
Clay Calvert, in your piece, Friends of the Court, Friends of the First Amendment, Exploring Amicus Briefs, Court for Platforms Editorial Independence, which you published at the end of December, you really helpfully summarize the major amicus briefs and talk about their contribution to what the effects of the decision would be, starting with the Anti-Defamation League's brief, which says that the, the cases would unconstitutionally deprive social media platforms of content moderation tools they urgently need. Uh, maybe tell us more about the highlights from, from some of those other briefs that you discuss in that piece and broadly your take on the cases. Sure. So uh, I agree with Alex on the first part. I, I believe that the uh, content moderation provisions or the must carry provisions, as we're referring to them, are going to be declared uh, unconstitutional. Uh, really, we can think of this as a, as a right not to speak case is another way of thinking it, that the Supreme Court has recognized not only that the First Amendment explicitly protects freedom of speech, but also the right not to be compelled by the government to host objectionable speech. So that's one way of thinking about the content moderation or must carry provisions that really they are, it's a right not to speak case. And you're compelling social media platforms to host content that they otherwise would not, that violates their terms of use or terms of service. Uh, so in terms of those briefs, what the Anti-Defamation League is really concerned with is the proliferation of hate speech, racist speech, anti-Semitic speech uh, on the internet. And, and as Alex was suggesting that the viewpoint prohibition, basically, you can't remove somebody based upon their viewpoint. What the Anti-Defamation League is suggesting then is that if somebody has a racist, hateful viewpoint, uh, you couldn't remove that type of hate speech under the terms of Texas's provision, as I, as, as I think the they make clear, the ADL makes clear in that case, Anti-Defamation League. Uh, other provisions, the Media uh, Law Resource Center focuses on this notion of the marketplace of ideas. Uh, and that uh, platforms have a very important role to play as gatekeepers in the marketplace of ideas. The marketplace of ideas, of course, is the is the underlying notion that uh, fair competition, free and fair competition of ideas will produce the truth uh, in our society. Uh, and that requires winnowing away or whittling away at false ideas. And so what the Media Law Resource Center focuses on in its brief is this notion that platforms actually play a very vital role in this process by discarding or jettisoning some speech and some users uh, that really don't go to that goal of producing uh, the best test of truth or, or the best ideas. Uh, another one of the briefs was filed by national security experts. Uh, and that particular brief was very concerned about how extremist uh, terrorist organizations uh, lurk and proliferate uh, on social media platforms. And that both the Florida and Texas laws would hinder and hamper the ability of social media platforms uh, to remove such speech that may threaten and jeopardize uh, national security interests. Uh, other briefs focus on the question of are uh, platforms common carriers? And the answer to that is no, they simply are not common carriers. So there were multiple uh, friend of the court briefs uh, filed uh, in this case on behalf of or neutrally the net choice and CCIA. Thank you so much for that and for summarizing the positions so well. Uh, D David Green, um, in the spirit of uh, the NCC, can you make the strongest argument in favor of the constitutionality of the Texas laws, uh, which at least claim to be attempting to hold the platforms to First Amendment standards and refusing to allow them to discriminate on the basis of content or to ban speech on that basis. 
And then give us a sense. You, you, you've talked about how for several terms now, folks have been saying that uh, the court is eager to say something about social media and content moderation. Might these particular cases be that occasion? And if so, what might the court say? Well, you've given me the hard one trying to trying to defend these uh, laws. I've been I've been writing about how wrong these efforts are since before Texas and Florida. Um, but let me just say this: I think the only way to defend the best defense of these laws is to actually have a view of social media that doesn't reflect what social media actually is. So, I think the best defense of these laws is that social media is our sites that are open for anybody where people can freely publish um, to the audience of their choice. Um, and, and because of that, there's some type of uh, function that guarantees uh, people access. That really is the, whether you frame that as common carriage or, or something else, um, I don't know. But I think that's at least sort of the best the best defensive framework. I think that fails, though, because, first of all, that's not really what social media is. Social media always has been, um, really from its very inception, been a curated process. Um, and these laws actually directly attack and, and really, you could say, are most concerned with recommendation systems, um, which are really inherently not open and passive and free-flowing, but really controlled top-down by in, in a very typical editorial editorial function. So I have a hard time defending <laughs> the the must carry uh, the must carry provisions uh, here. I, I, in terms of what I think um, why I think the court is interested in this topic, I, I think we've seen several efforts over the last few terms by the court to want to say something about the current state of First Amendment and the internet and maybe social media in particular. And they seem to have the past really chosen bad cases to do that. And then when they finally get into the cases, they end up going someplace else with them. And I think we probably saw that most clearly last term with um, uh, Gonzalez versus Google and Tamna versus Twitter, where they seem to have taken these cases you know, to finally say something about Section 230 um, and maybe even say something about um, First Amendment rights of, of uh, social media companies. Um, and then realized, I think, very once they got into you know, the briefing and look at the cases closely, that the cases really presented a poor opportunity uh, for that, and they and they dodged the issue, and uh, just as they had dodged the issue largely um, in in cases in previous terms. Here, I think you know, they've taken five cases, and we'll talk about the other ones later. And I really think they're hoping that maybe you know, at least one of them will give them the opportunity to say something. You know, I, with this court, there's always the possibility of them wanting to. Uh, take a closer look at a case decided that has you've been seen to be established law. And so I don't know if this, there are at least one or two justices on this court who want to reconsider the seminal holding in ACLU versus Reno that, uh, that we treat online speech in an unqualified manner, that it's not treated, it's not considered exceptional in the way that broadcast radio and television were considered um, exceptional. And again, I, that's not, it's not an issue that's being, it's not an argument that's being directly pushed by anybody in these cases. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely discount at least one justice wanting to say, say something about that. So I do think, 
that these cases really will, it's, it's going to be difficult to avoid the First Amendment issues um, in these cases. And so I, I think we'll find, we'll find out something about what the court thinks. Many thanks for that. Um, all right, well, let's turn now to the next uh, case, Murthy and Missouri. The question is whether the government efforts to pressure social media platforms to take down speech, often referred to as jawboning, violates the First Amendment. The Biden administration had uh, talked to, pressured, uh, or coerced, depending on your view, the, the companies to take down speech involving COVID uh, disinformation as well as some election disinformation. And the question is when, if at all, that, that violates the First Amendment. Um, Alex Abdo, uh, tell us about that case and why you think that the court should make clear that claims of unconstitutional jawboning should be evaluated according to a coercion test that the court introduced in a case called Bantam Books. Well, uh, let me start there. You know, that is one of the um, hardest conceptual parts of this case is just figuring out what the right legal framework is for a principle that seems obvious. And the principle that seems obvious is the government is not permitted to censor um, individuals or you know to censor views or speech um, directly through legislation or through um, uh, you know the exercise of its official power. And the Supreme Court made clear in the Bantam Books case in 1963 that the government can't do that indirectly either. You can't do it through informal government action that um, is designed to have the effect of of you know suppressing views and the test that the Supreme Court gestured at in Bantam um, is the co you know what we think of as the coercion test. It said that um, the government cannot coerce uh, private intermediaries for speech. In that case, it was book distributors uh, into uh, taking down protected speech. Um, and that the Supreme Court hasn't said anything about that test in the sixty years, sixty one now, I suppose. Uh, since Bantam Books. And the lower courts have applied a kind of smattering of different legal tests to this question. And, you know, to my mind, this is a good opportunity for the Supreme Court to clarify, you know, a constitutional doctrine because it's a little bit unclear. There are some uh, circuits that apply the coercion test, but there are other circuits that apply a state action test um, from Blum versus Yaretsky, which was not a First Amendment case. It was a case about uh, when governmental coercion or encouragement reaches the point that you can actually um, hold uh, the government accountable for the private action of private actors. Um, you know, it's, it's in other words, uh, the question of when private action becomes state action, which is also a really important question, but it's a very different one than the question of when the government violates the First Amendment by, um, you know, uh, coercing private actors into suppressing speech. So, you know, it's an important opportunity for the court to clarify um, the doctrine that applies and to give guidance to, to lower courts. Because even if the court settles on coercion versus persuasion, which again is the kind of test that lower courts have understood Bantam to stand for, these two things are not a binary. They exist on a spectrum. Um, you know, some persuasion is in effect coercive and some people may experience um um, you know, coercion as a form of persuasion. And where you draw the line between the two is not, you know, not entirely obvious. What we encouraged the Supreme Court to do in our amicus brief was to set out some of the constitutional principles that underlie the distinction. Um, you know, the first and most obvious principle that, that underlies it is that 
you know, intermediaries for speech and their users have a right to participate in forums of their own creation and their own making free from government coercion. Um, that's the kind of most obvious principle. That's a direct derivative of the, of the First Amendment. The second, which is a little bit less obvious, but we think very important, is that the public actually has an interest, a constitutional one, in having a government um, that is empowered to attempt to shape public opinion through persuasion. Um, and that's a First Amendment interest because the public has a right to hear what its government has to say. And in a representative democracy, majorities have a right to elect a government that is empowered to govern. And that includes the power to try to convince people um, of the government's views, uh, you know, even when the government takes a view, takes a position on, on a contested issue. Uh, and then the final constitutional principle that you know, we think these kinds of cases raise is the threat that the government will be able to circumvent constitutional limitations by acting informally or surreptitiously, um, especially when the government is um, communicating with platforms behind closed doors. The threat is that the government will be able to effectively suppress speech without anybody knowing. And without anybody knowing, uh, it's very difficult to hold the government accountable, either politically or judicially through litigation, to you know, its suppression of constitutionally protected speech. Um, if the court agreed with us and articulated three, these three constitutional principles as underlying the coercion test, that would by no means resolve all of the uncertainty in the application of that test. Um, but I think it would provide some guidance, which is sorely needed, because as with any totality of the circumstances test, which I think the coercion test will have to be, um, there's murkiness. It's going to depend on the facts, and it would be great if the Supreme Court could at least give some more guidance than what we have had so far, which is coercion on the one hand, persuasion on the other, which, you know, unfortunately doesn't resolve hard cases. Many thanks for that. Uh, Clay Calvert, you have a really helpful piece, per Persuasion or Coercion, Understanding the Government's Position in Mirtha versus Missouri. You published it on January 8th. You note that uh, Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch dissented from a decision postponing enforcement of the Fifth Amendment's injunction. Justice Alito worried that delaying enforcement will be seen by some as giving the government a green light to use heavy-handed tactics to skew the presentation of views on a medium that dominates the dissemination of news. Maybe tell us more about what exactly the Biden administration was doing that provoked Justice Alito's comment. And then you really helpfully sum up General Prologar's central thesis about drawing a line between persuasion and coercion, which I won't summarize the whole thing, but you, but you describe it as uh, being based on the idea that so long as the government seeks to inform and persuade rather than to compel, its speech poses no First Amendment concerns. Tell us more about her position, whether or not you agree with it. Sure. So, so back to the Alito part, your first part of that question. Uh, it simply illustrates the political divisiveness of this case, uh, that conservatives and liberals see it in very different fashion. Uh, I think uh, con many conservatives see that uh, narratives that ran counter to the Biden administration's stance on COVID vaccines, mask mandates, and, and business shutdowns, election fraud, are being unfairly censored. Uh, by the government in this case. So that's that's how many conservatives typically see it. Uh, many liberals would frame it on the other hand is that the government is doing good here, trying to uh, have platforms take down misinformation, disinformation, falsities uh, regarding uh, vaccinations, uh, vaccine efficiencies, uh, and other things. So I think that 
what Alito was getting at is postponing the Fifth Circuit's injunction uh, against enforcement uh, or stopping the Biden administration officials. And they're, they're, by the way, there are hundreds, right? I mean, this affects so many people. It's very broad, right? Uh, that that essentially uh, was a political decision. Uh, so it's a very politically divisive case. And to go back to, I think, one of my concerns, too, is is exactly, I mean, Alex has the terms exactly right, you know, persuasion versus coercion. I think one of my fears is at the court, all nine justices could adopt those exact same terms, and this is the grayness in the middle, and reach very different conclusions about whether it was persuasion or coercion. And on a court that, as we know today, is, is six to three, or whatever you want to cut it, really politically divided and losing support from among many people in the population, uh, you know, a decision where they adopt the same terms and same language and split and disagree on it along political or perceived political ideological lines, you know, that's going to be divisive and harmful for the court. Uh, To get back to Justice Preloger's, the Solicitor General's uh, brief uh, that she filed, she, she suggests that simply what the Biden administration officials were engaging in was nothing more than routine back and forth. Uh, that they are allowed to criticize, uh, even in strong terms, uh, the actions of social media platforms, uh, such strong criticism using strong language, even repeatedly, uh, does not rise, however, to the level of actual coercion. In her mind, you have to actually have a threat. Uh, It either has to be an explicit threat of an adverse consequence uh, in other words, if you don't do this, if you don't do something, there has to be in direct relation to that some negative or adverse consequence that will befall. So one thing that in this case, uh, Missouri and Louisiana uh, have argued is that Section 230 uh, was kind of put into play during some of the discussions by Biden administration officials. Section 230 is the federal statute that protects platforms from liability uh, for others' content uh, that others post. They're not typically, again, there's some exceptions, but typically the platforms are not liable for that. And so what many conservatives fear is feel is that by putting Section 230 into play, that that was a threat that unless you take down this information that we don't like, uh, Section 230 is going to be revoked or repealed or somehow reformed in a way that is not beneficial uh, to the platforms. So I think that gives a little bit uh, insight into her brief that it was simply the routine back and forth. Uh, she also talks about the power of the bully pulpit a lot, uh, that all presidents, uh, whether it was, it was President Biden, but going back in time, and the brief does a good job of articulating about six prior presidents who've used the power of the bully pulpit uh, to influence their position and try to get their way, that this, again, is routine. In other words, for justices who like historicism, uh, or take things over history. There's a historical pattern uh, 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 of administrations engaging in this type. So this is not new. Uh, so that gives you a little bit of insight, I hope, on, on, on her brief, in this case, on behalf of the federal government. Great. Uh, summary, very helpful. And thank you for helping us understand it so well. Uh, David Green, in your piece, is in jawboning cases, there's no getting away from textual analysis published on November 7th. You note that if only direct coercion were forbidden, the court could decide these cases by looking for an explicit threat. But you say the Supreme Court rightfully recognized the unconstitutionality of indirect coercion and set out a test in Bantam Books, and you kind of helpfully 
lay out the four relevant factors in Bantam books. One, word choice and tone. Second, the existence of regulatory authority. Third, whether the speech was perceived as a threat. And most importantly, perhaps whether the speech refers to adverse consequences. Might the court stick with the Bantam book tests? And where would that lead the government in this case? Yeah, so that four-part test is a test that several of the lower courts used, uh, but the court in Bantam did not frame it those way. The Second Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and even the Fifth Circuit below in Murthy used those four factors. And importantly, they're not they're not exclusive factors. I think they were identifying them as among the most important, but certainly, certainly not the only ones. I, I think many of us who follow this issue and have been following it for a long time are really thirsty for for some for some type of skeleton uh, to hang this to hang this analysis on, and the four part of uh, some type of four part test um, it seems to give some shape to the totality of circumstances analysis. But I do think it's and I and I think that will be attractive to this court, especially the members of this court who like tests, who like multi part tests, and I I do think we'll see something come out of the court that is less amorphous than what we have now. But I do think there are other factors that in, that are that are important and I'd like to see the court look at those look at those factors as well. One of the things we talk about in our brief we filed um, are sort of our power imbalances, sometimes the court. Um, you know, and so and this might depend on who the governmental speaker is. And even within the context of the executive branch, there seems to be a very a qualitative difference between someone from the White House making very strong requests and you know somebody from the CDC, which has very, very limited regulatory authority, or someone from an uh, from an agency like CISA, which is inherently advisory um, in its functions. So, um, you know, when you have something, you know, the, the name plaintiff here is the Surgeon General, whose job essentially is to be sort of a public scold on on public health. And it would, it would seem to be odd to take out the public scold part of the job. And it, it's it's uncertain what would be left of, of the Surgeon General's job if they weren't allowed to sort of lecture everybody on, on, on public health advice. I, I do think there are two very interesting things happening in this case. One is this doctrinal question that we as lawyers are very interested in. And I actually don't know that there'll be a lot of dispute among the court around this. And part of that is because, um, because the totality of the circumstances test is so flexible. I do think we'll get a coalescing of the justices around some type of framework, whether it's those four factors or something based on those four factors. Uh, In our brief, we urge the court to really look at two essential questions that those four factors help to answer. One is the government's intent. Does the government have an intent um, to replace its editorial judgment uh, with that of the platforms. And the second being the perception of the platform would a reasonable person perceive that they really had no choice uh, to substitute the government's editorial decisions for their own. The second part, which is much more interesting, which the court might not get to because they could just remand, is actually how do you apply that test to the numerous very, very different interactions that took place in in this case. And the, I don't see us getting five votes on, <laughs> on most of those things just because, uh, again, what, uh, uh, stating a multi-factor test is e- much far easier than applying it. So I think it'll be really interesting to see wh- how the court treats the individual examples. And I think if you read the 
amicus briefs, there's a great range, those who engage with the facts, there's a really great range of whether, of which types of interactions people think um, were permissible, cross the line from, I don't even know if the lines are between per persuasion and coercion as much so as permissible persuasion and impermissible persuasion. A, a helpful distinction, indeed. Well, uh, let's now turn to the final set of cases. Uh, they're called O'Connor Ratcliffe versus Garnier and Linke versus Freed. The question is, to what degree can government officials block or restrict people from commenting on their social media accounts? And there are different facts in these cases. In Linke, an official was using a private account created before he became an official. In the other case, O'Connor Ratcliffe, we have the opposite. The accounts were designated as official government accounts. And the question is, to what degree can uh, blocking or editing be allowed? Alex Abdo, how do you think we should think about these cases? Well, the, the most important, I think, legal question presented by the cases is um, when public official use of social media uh, is subject to the First Amendment, which um, is actually the, a state action question, unlike, um, you know, unlike the main question at issue in the Murthy case, is the question of when uh, public officials who are interacting with their constituents or furthering their official duties using their social media accounts, you know, when or whether and when um, uh, their use of those accounts uh, is subject to First Amendment limitations with the main one that we would care about being the prohibition on um, uh, on viewpoint discrimination. Um, because if the First Amendment is held to apply to public officials who are using their accounts in this way, then they can't silence their critics, uh, much in the same way that public officials can't silence their critics in town hall meetings or other traditional public forums. What the plaintiffs in these cases are arguing for is very similar to what um, uh, the Knight Institute was arguing when it filed a suit against uh, former President Trump, when he used his Twitter account very much as an extension of his office and began blocking critics, um, which is uh, an, an order forbidding public officials from silencing their critics uh, in these forums, um, uh, you know, on the basis of viewpoint. Unfortunately, one of the two circuits, the Sixth Circuit in the decision below, um, in one of the decisions below, adopted a very formalistic understanding of when public official use of social media uh, is subject to the First Amendment. And um, it essentially held that it, you know, public officials in their use of social media are subject to the First Amendment only when they use um, uh, state resources or have an explicitly set out um, uh, duty in regulation or in law uh, requiring them to use social media in furtherance of their official responsibilities. And those are very narrow circumstances. Most public officials um, who engage with the public using social media are not doing so because there is a law that requires them to do so. Um, some use state resources. Former President Trump relied on, um, uh, on uh, you know, official federal employees to help him administer his account. But many public officials, especially at the local level, don't have the resources to rely on in their offices to help administer their accounts, even if and even when those accounts become an important tool of governance or an, an important um, uh, avenue through which 
they disseminate important official information to the public. And so what I would like to see the court do is adopt um, the standard test the court uses to distinguish between state action and private action in other contexts, which is to look to see uh, you know, whether the official uh, is um, you know, using their account as a tool of governance, you know, whether and whether their use of it is fairly attributable to the state. And again, as with the Murthy case, the legal lines here are a little bit mysterious, you know, um, context dependent. Um, and I, you know, understand the instinct that some may have in the face of an uncertain totality test to gravitate toward, um, you know, uh, a test that is maybe easier to administer, but, you know, loses some of the nuance. I understand that, but I think that'd be a mistake in this context because it would be a roadmap for public officials um, to create echo chambers in their online engagement with their constituencies, which is now, you know, one of the most important ways that public officials engage with the public. That idea of an echo chamber is powerful. And thanks also for the analysis of the of the Sixth Circuit decision. Uh, Clay Calvert, how would you look at these two social media cases? Sure. I mean, I agree that the Sixth Circuit test is really too limiting in terms of citizen participation uh, by making it too hard to overcome that state action hurdle, essentially, that they have to be acting pursuant to their official duties in some way uh, to trigger state action. So, uh, given, as Alex said, this is how people communicate today, often uh, with their public officials, their representatives in government, uh, to hinder that by saying, oh, there's no state action because the test we've created limits it so much. That's going to be very problematic. So, yes, while that's much, the Sixth Circuit has a much more bright line, are you acting pursuant to your official duties or apparent duties uh, when, when you operate this website? even though it appears to be private, but are you doing it that way? That's a very narrow test. So yes, the court will probably adopt uh, much more of a totality of the circumstances test with multi-factors, uh, multiple factors. It, it'll be more messy to apply, uh, probably much more subjective to apply. Uh, if you go back to the O'Connor-Ratcliffe test, things that they focused on uh, were things like the appearance of the website. Uh, do I have indicia uh, that I'm using it? I've got a picture of myself at a government event. Uh, I've posted my uh, office location I communicate with my constituents uh, for the purpose about it. In other words, how do I use it? Am I using it a lot to communicate to with my constituents, to convey information, to solicit feedback, to interact with them? Or am I using it much more in a private capacity? So one thing I usually tell my students is there's nothing in these cases that says you can't just have your own, if you're a government official, and I can have my own you know, social media account where I talk about movie reviews, right, uh, or my family. Uh, and that's not going to trigger state action. Uh, the question is then, once I start using it for other purposes, when do we get there? So, uh, again, there's there's going to be a lot of gray area there. So I agree the Sixth Circuit test is too limiting given, given the realities of how people communicate uh, with their representatives today. Many thanks for that. Well, we now turn to the Knight Institute's position, and you filed a, a, a really comprehensive brief in the case, David Green, um, in both O'Connor Radcliffe and Linke, where you argue that when an official chooses to mix government and non-governmental conduct and an individual account, they must accept the First Amendment obligations 
that go with doing so, and the court should apply well-established bans on viewpoint discrimination. Tell us about that position, and then tell us about the case that's been mentioned a few times, which uh, involved the Knight First Amendment Institute versus Trump, which was a lawsuit filed at the end of the Trump administration involving whether or not President Trump could ban folks on Twitter, and the court ended up sending that case back to the Second Circuit with instructions to dismiss it as moot. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to talk about uh, talk about our brief, and I can I can which we filed, which we at EFF filed jointly uh, with with Knight, and I am. And let me just say, I actually don't think that the gray area is as gray and murky with this test as it is with the jawboning tests. And, and I think because when you look at the, it's a tremendously common practice for governmental officials to use social media to do their jobs, uh, to make official announcements, to have um, to have the type of discussions with constituents that they formerly would have had at at public gatherings. This is really common. Um, the only thing that's unusual about it is that occasionally some, well, two things, occasionally some of them also like post photos of their children, which again is also not completely uh, unusual uh, in, in other contexts. And we're, what we really see a lot of, which I think is a really dangerous manipulation of the system, are uh, officials who've had who've had campaign accounts, which they consider to be private. And then once they get elected to office, they use that campaign account to then essentially do their jobs, uh, to talk about their accomplishments, to talk, to discuss the issues, to, uh, to make announcements, and to communicate with their constituents. Uh, and then they claim when they start to silence their critics uh, on those sites that this is still part of campaigning. I think that's a very dangerous practice, and I think that's something that the court can directly say um, is that they're that they're not they're not acting as candidates then, uh, but they're acting as officials, and that's really one of the most common scenarios we've seen here. I think the type of I, the type of scenario that's that's raised in the Linky versus Free case, uh, where someone really has a seems to have a private account that very occasionally and rarely uses it for governmental purpose, is actually the outlier in what we see in these cases. So um, I'm hopeful that this actually presents a case where the court could actually give a fair amount of clarity. I, I think the Ninth Circuit's test actually really reflects and looks at the factors that are really obvious and common at how government officials use so use the interactive spaces of their social media accounts. And I think the Sixth Circuit says just doesn't reflect it at all. It's far too narrow. It captures a, a tiny slice of how of how government officials use it. Um, the the uh, Alex's case that they brought at night against Trump um, had both of these issues, right? You had the issue of whether Trump's previously existing account real Donald Trump um, could be you was being used for the purposes of the presidency as a, and and there there wasn't actually an official account the at POTUS account um, that he rarely used but it was very clear from the facts of that case that the president was conducting the business of the presidency over primarily Twitter he was firing people 
<laughs> over <laughs> over Twitter. That was the only place it was, you know, over at the real Donald Trump account. That was the only place, for example, that 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 was that was being publicly done. So um, so in those cases, there were some really obvious examples there. Knight did a really uh, excellent job of of actually having you know discovery in this case um, and finding out some of the details about how those decisions were made and, and things like that that really support that idea. And then the second part of the case, which it would have been really, uh, which the lower courts I thought dealt with really well, was once you once there is a First Amendment right, then what does it mean? What does that limit? And certainly at a minimum, it limits viewpoint discrimination. Um, whether it also limits content-based decisions would really, I think, depend then on a very difficult factual scenario about uh, whether the forum that created is a you know, is a non-public forum, is, is a, some type of limited public forum or some type of public forum like a designated, designated public forum. That's much more, uh, and I think that is the much more uh, fuzzy area. I think it's unlikely the court could take that up in these cases. I think it's far more likely that the court will pick a test and then remand uh, both of these cases uh, for the courts to apply apply those tests. And I think looking at these, all these cases really broadly, what you're really seeing is the Supreme Court really needing to understand content moderation, really need to understand what this process is of how things end up being seen by the public on social media. Uh, these cases really deal with user controls, how, how a user can control their own account. And the other cases really deal with how the platforms make those decisions. And the, what's critical is the courts really need, going to need to understand this. And I th- hope they really understand this in a way they don't what we frequently see in technology cases, the court, these very sort of pithy laugh lines of the oral arguments, like, you know, we're the, we're not the best nine people to make these decisions. Um, and I really hope we don't get, I hope we're done with that. And we really get the court really seriously engaging with something that's actually understandable and which they've had a ton of help with in amicus briefs in these cases. Many thanks for that. And for that really helpful distinction between user control and how platforms make the decisions Well, it's time for some closing thoughts in this great discussion. And Alex Abdo, in mooting out the uh, Trump Twitter case, which which, uh, Knight brought, Justice Thomas said that applying old doctrines to new digital platforms is rarely straightforward, and the justices will soon have no choice but to address how our legal doctrines apply to highly concentrated, privately owned information infrastructures such as digital platforms. One important insight I've gotten from this great discussion is that it's impossible to apply a single simple rule to all of these cases, such as no viewpoint discrimination in any circumstances. But each of you has distinguished among different uses of the platforms by the platforms themselves and by users in a context-specific way. As you try to identify some broad principles for the justices to apply in all three categories of cases, what would you say? It's a really great question. Maybe I'll even step back and, and answer the question at an even higher level. And this goes, um, you know, maybe you can put this in the in the bucket of helping David answer the impossible question you gave him earlier, which is um, trying to defend Texas's and Florida's laws. I, I understand what I think motivated Justice Thomas in writing that concurrence and what motivated some of the other justices um, in implying in the lead up to the Gonzalez case that they were interested in revising 
section, you know, the judicial interpretation of Section 230. And, and what I think, you know, motivates that concern is the fact that a relatively small number of companies seem to exercise a significant amount of control over what can be said online today. I don't think that's unique to this moment. I think media organizations have also played historically an outsized role in deciding what views get aired publicly and spread among the public. But this is the latest version of, of uh, you know, of that example where a relatively small number of companies seem to, you know, have outsized power over public discourse. Um, and I think that is maybe the most charitable explanation for why regulators are targeting the social media platforms for essentially common carriage laws, as David was saying earlier, you know, must carry laws. I think um, that effort is misguided for the reasons David was saying earlier. These platforms are not, in fact, the public square. They are privately curated spaces for people to join in communities that the platforms have a heavy hand in organizing um, and that people go to in large part because of the benefit they see in the close curatorial control that the platforms exercise over you know, those diff very different speech environments. You know, most people don't want to go on Facebook and see um, hate and toxicity and um, uh, uh, pornography. They go on there because Facebook spends an enormous amount of money um, curating, uh, you know, uh, communities and conversations that are different, that are different than those. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a a critic of the platforms. I don't think they're serving, you know, uh, democracy especially well at the moment. But I don't think the answer to the problem of concentration of power over public discourse is to concentrate that power in the hands of the government. Um, I think if you're genuinely concerned about that concentration of power, then the solution is to attack the concentration, um, to, uh, you know, look at potential legislative solutions that make it easier for competitors to come into the market that more closely align the incentives of the platforms with the interests of their users. Um, you know, you know, laws directed at competition or interoperability or privacy or transparency, I think are a better, you know, much better model to pursue than laws that are directed at um, content moderation directly. And so it may be that when the court took the Gonzalez case, it had that kind of buyer's remorse that David was gesturing at. I, I really hope that's not what motivated the court into taking um the net choice cases. And I don't, actually don't think that's what motivated the court into taking those cases. I don't think it had a choice. It had two very conflicting circuit decisions. You know, one, the Fifth Circuit that was, you know, in outright conflict with the very long line of Supreme Court cases. I don't think it really had a choice but to take those cases. Um, and hopefully, um, but hopefully I'm, you know, predicting correctly that the court will invalidate the must carry provisions as I, as I think it should. So um, if I have a, you know, broad takeaway, it's that, um, I agree with David that content moderation is not where generally where legislatures should be focusing their efforts. I'd much prefer that they focus on some of the structural problems with competition in the social media market. Thank you so much for that great and very Brandeisian uh, insight about if the central problem is concentrated power in the hands of the platforms, don't solve it by concentrating power in the hands of the government. Uh, Clay Calvert, uh, final thoughts and are there any overarching principles you'd urge the justices to consider that unite all of these cases? 
Well, let me just add something to which Alex said about the split of authority between the Fifth Circuit uh, and the Eleventh Circuit uh, on the net choice cases. The Fifth Circuit, which upheld, it's important to note, uh, Texas laws and said they were perfectly fine. Uh, that decision was bizarre from any traditional First Amendment analysis. Uh, it really reeks of a text, history, and tradition approach, which is designed to appeal, uh, Jeffrey, as you started out, to Justice Thomas. Uh, increasingly, the conservative justices, uh, in the Second Amendment cases at least, right, are all about what does the text say, what's the history, and what's the tradition of this. And the Fifth Circuit's, uh, uh, the majority opinion, really went down a text, history, tradition approach. That creates an opening if Thomas wants to go there and maybe pull Alito in uh, to take a very different analysis than we typically see uh, in First Amendment cases, which is, uh, you know, is it speech? Does the speech fall into an unprotected category? Uh, If it doesn't, then it's protected. And then if it's content-based law, you apply strict scrutiny. If it's it's, uh, content neutral, you apply intermediate scrutiny. The Fifth Circuit's analysis really didn't do that. And I think it really helped to tee it up uh, if the conservative justices want to go there. Uh, The bottom line, I would say, to to go to have big picture principles here is something somebody else mentioned earlier, the Reno versus ACLU case, maybe David mentioned that, uh, uh, from 1996, uh, where the Supreme Court, or 97, the United States Supreme Court said that uh, we're going to treat the Internet speakers like speakers in the print medium and not narrow their First Amendment rights like we have done with broadcasting and cable. Uh, And so I think that's another issue here. Are they going to revisit that major principle? I don't think they'll reverse that. Some justices, again, Thomas might want to go there. I don't think that's going to happen. The whole net choice cases are all about the ability of private businesses to create their own speech-based communities that they want to enforce themselves. And now the government is telling them, mandating, you must host speech that you don't want to. So they're interfering with that. So one of the key things is going to be, there's a case called Miami Herald versus Tornillo from 1974, which basically said, the Supreme Court said, you cannot, print newspapers cannot be compelled to host replies from candidates for public office that are attacked. And Florida had a statute saying that, well, okay, if you're a candidate for public office and you're attacked by the Miami Herald, as Tornello was, he gets free space. And the Supreme Court struck that down and said, no, that violates the rights of editorial control and discretion that a print newspaper has. Uh, and that principle comes up in this case, and it's not a clear square analogy. They don't, they're, they're different, right? Print newspapers are different than social media platforms, but that's going to be something that the court's going to have to wrestle with here. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, David Green, last word in this wonderful discussion is to you. Uh, we're, we're almost at time, so if you could keep it tight and inspire our listeners by bringing together the big themes that you think should uh, guide the court as they consider these important cases. Yeah, I think it's useful just looking at, looking at these these five cases together to look at them as examining different facets of government's inv- interaction with social media. So the net choice cases really are government as regulator. Does government have any type of regulatory role over the content moderation process? I, I think I think we all think the answer is no or very, very limited role. Um, on the other end are the, um, the uh, government social media accounts. So now you have government as a user of social media. What is the government's role? Does it Does it have, does it, um, how do we treat government when it's a user of social media? Does it still have the limitations we typically place 
on government uh, when it when it participates in other forums. And, and so to what extent does the public forum doctrine now apply to those? And then in the middle, really interestingly, is the jawboning cases, both Murthy, the online case, as well as the other jawboning case the court has taken, NRA versus follow, which doesn't arise um, in the internet context. But again, what you have there is um, to what extent, what is the government's role where it's sort of standing in the place of other users? And, and I think the important thing with the Murthy case is that the platforms get a ton of feedback, not just from the government, but from but from their own users and from some trusted partners and, and civil society. Um, and can the government play on equal grounds in that role, or is the or is the government again limited um, by uh, you know, have to function a limited function? So I. What I think is interesting about all these cases altogether is really bringing them in totality is you really have to have a full spectrum of what is the government's proper role um, as it participates um, with, with social media content moderation. Beautifully put, and you bring us right in on time. Alex Abdo, Clay Calvert, and David Green, thank you so much for an illuminating and uh, uplifting discussion of the court's role in discussing the First Amendment and social media. Alex, Clay, David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, friends, for taking an hour in the middle of your day to learn about the Constitution and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. Thank you all. This program was streamed live on January 16th, 2024. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Tanea Tauber, and Bill Pollack. It was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Samson Mastashare, Cooper Smith, and Yara Derese. We the People friends, I'm so excited that on February 13th, my new book is coming out. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. I can't wait to share it with you. And if you read the book and like it, email me and I'll send a signed book plate. That's jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional conversation and debate. And if you like this episode, please subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on your favorite podcast app. Always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission or give a donation of any amount at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.